Hello and welcome to Working for the Word. I'm Andrew Case, and today we have a very special guest, probably the most special guest I will ever have on this podcast. Her name is Bethany Case. We have been married for over two years now, and as I say in the dedication of my prayer book, she is the delight of my eyes, song and joy of my heart, the beloved of my soul, the perfection of beauty. So that is my introduction to my beloved wife. She is also much smarter than I am and an incredible scholar. And if you've seen our Hebrew videos, a wonderful Hebrew teacher. And the other thing that is close to her heart is linguistics. So we are going to talk about today the field of morphology and syntax, which she is actually teaching here in Spain right now. So welcome, beautiful Bethany. Well, thank you. We're here in Spain still, stuck in Spain, locked down, and we've been teaching these students here at a place called Proel. Let's start out talking a little bit about Bethany's background and where she's coming from. Sure. So I grew up in Michigan and uh, from a pretty young age started to develop a really strong interest in languages and other cultures. So that led me to study linguistics in college and um, became a bit of a language nerd even from high school. I was studying all kinds of different languages just in my spare time for fun. So I really started to embrace the identity as a language nerd mm -hmm. and get into linguistics. Um, I was interested in using that gift for Bible translations. So that led me to also study at the University of North Dakota program that SIL has. And so I was there for actually eight years, eight summers, eight consecutive summers. And I uh, learned a lot about linguistics there, finished a master's degree in linguistics from the University of North Dakota. I spent four to five years in Colombia as well, where I also did some research for my master's thesis on a language there called Embera Catillo. And after uh, my time in Colombia was coming to a close, I went to Israel to study Hebrew because I was interested in getting into Bible translation more. And I realized that while I had a lot of linguistics background, I didn't have any background in the biblical languages, and that was a huge hole. So I, um, with the help of a lot of people who, uh, I did a, a crowdfunding um, campaign to help raise money because I didn't have the money to pay for the program, the Jerusalem Center for Bible Translators program there in Israel. And I was super blessed by how many people, even people I'd never met, uh, gave towards helping me get to Jerusalem to study Hebrew. And so uh, I had a fantastic five months there and really fell in love with Hebrew as a language. It really challenged me to dig deeper into the Bible. And uh, a wonderful side effect of that was that I met Andrew Case. Mm -hmm. Uh, during that same period. So fell in love not only with Hebrew, but also with this wonderful man who's now my husband. So um, right now I'm trying to give back, you know, what I received as far as so many people gave towards helping send me to Israel. And so a big part of my focus right now, besides teaching this linguistics class, is to make Hebrew resources to help other people learn who might not have the chance to go to Israel. 
Mm -hmm. So that's a big focus right now of my work. And backing up, you skipped the part about your love for ancient languages in the ancient Near East back even when you were 14 years old, right? So you were studying what when you were 14? <laughs> well, let's see. What was I not studying? Um, so I, in high school, I took some Latin. I was also super interested and continue to be fascinated with ancient Egypt. So my grandma gave me a book on how to read Egyptian hieroglyphs, and I started working through that on my own drawing out little hieroglyphs. Um, and my grandma took me to Egypt actually when I was 15 years old on a two week tour. And that was like the highlight of my life at that point as a 15 year old. Um, mm -hmm. Here I was wandering around the temples trying to read the hieroglyphs on carved into the stone and <laughs> had an absolute blast. Um, so I, I would just dip into little different languages here and there, wanted to learn different alphabets. Um, didn't get really deep into any one of them, but kind of skimming the surface and uh, getting my feet wet in a lot of different languages. So not your typical 14-year-old girl activities, but... Yeah, uh, not so much. <laughs> that's why I fell in love with her. So let's get started talking about morphology and syntax. Give us a little bit of an introduction on this course. Probably a lot of listeners have never heard of this subject, and if they have, they've never studied it. They've never gone deep into the, the field of linguistics, and this is one of the building blocks for Bible translation. So what we're doing is trying to train the future generation of, of Bible translators to have the tools that they need, and this is one of them. So um, give us a little bit of a rundown on this subject. Yeah, so this is a class I'm now teaching for the third time. It's called Morphology and Syntax, or some people would say Morphosyntax. It's kind of an introduction to grammar, generally. And I'm actually using the same textbook that I used when I learned. Mm -hmm. When I took this class as a student for the first time back in, I was 19 years old, I think. It's by Albert Bickford, who was the director of the University of North Dakota linguistics program there. Uh, and it's called Morphology and Syntax, Tools for Analyzing the World's Languages. So I think this is a great resource because unlike a lot of the Grammar One textbooks that are out there, it has an accompanying exercise book that has mm. data sets from languages all over the world. Like the craziest language families that um, you would probably never talk about in a lot of Linguistics one classes in a normal university linguistics program. So um, that's one of the things I love about this book is it really exposes the student to a lot of different structures, a lot of different random language families around the world, which is really important for someone who's preparing to work in minority languages that don't have a lot of work done on them, that don't have good descriptions made of them, or perhaps no one from the outside has even learned them before. So give us a little bit of a bird's eye view of the book and the course. What are some of the salient points that you guys cover and um, what those look like? Yeah, so let me give a little overview of some of the fields of linguistics. Mm -hmm. That's um, good. Among others, we talk about phonology, we talk about morphology, syntax, and discourse. And so I kind of want to orient the listener to where we're at here. Phonology is talking about how sounds interact 
to form words or what we call morphemes, which is like a segment of sounds that um, has a meaning in and of itself. For example, the word cats in English has two morphemes, cat, and then the S on the end indicates plural. So that S has its own meaning. Mm -hmm. We consider that a morpheme. Mm -hmm. But cats is only one word. So words can have multiple morphemes. Right. And so phonology looks at how sounds interact in the formation of words and morphemes. And then morphology, as its name sounds, is the study of those morphemes and how they interact to form words. So that's like the next level up or this hierarchy of different Mm -hmm. studies within linguistics. Mm -hmm. Then another level up would be syntax, and that's looking at how words interact to form sentences. And then we go one more level up and we look at discourse and how sentences interact to form utterances or texts that communicate more complex information. Mm -hmm. So we have this hierarchy of studies. There are other fields within linguistics, but this kind of helps us to situate, you know, what is morphology and syntax? Morphology is looking at the internal structure of words, and then syntax is looking at the internal structure of sentences, how those words combine. Like this course would give you the tools, perhaps, to write a grammar of a language that doesn't have a grammar. Is that more or less what it Exactly. So this course is going to introduce the students to uh, linguistic terms and all the different possibilities that there are among the world's languages and the terms that they would need to describe those possibilities so that when they encounter them in a language that they're learning they could ideally write a clear description of them Mm. uh, to help others understand what's going on in this structure. So this book covers topics like what are morphemes? How do you decide where the boundaries are between morphemes? Mm. uh, What are the different categories of words that we talk about? You know, adverbs, verbs, adjectives, prepositions, postpositions, Mm -hmm. demonstratives. There's a lot more. We also talk about uh, different types of verbs, verbs that are transitive or intransitive or ditransitive. That refers to how many different arguments they take. You know, if it has a direct object, if it doesn't have a direct object, if it takes an indirect object, mm-hmm. etc. We talk about different types of morphology. You know, besides the affixes that uh, most listeners are familiar with, you know, most people are familiar with like suffixes or prefixes because we have those in English. But there are also other types of affixes like circumfixes that go on either side of a radical. There are also infixes which appear on the inside of a radical. And then we might have morphemes that consist of, for example, a tone. Mm -hmm. So perhaps, you know, in English, we would mark past tense on a verb with the suffix of a D sound, mm-hmm. like stated or skated. But a language might also mark that same past tense on a verb with a change in tone or with mm. a nasalization of a vowel yeah. or some other mark. So lots of different types of morphology we introduce the students to. Mm -hmm. Uh, We talk about what to do with lots of irregular morphemes. You know, we have lots of differences, for example, in English, lots of irregular past tenses. How do we describe that? So what's cool about this book is that it gives examples 
from all over the world, right? Of the way languages do things in different ways. Yeah, the students get exposed to things that they probably never imagined could even happen in a mm -hmm. language. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed that. When I first took this course as a 19-year-old, I had a little bit of background from my own nerdy studies, but it really opened my eyes to what is possible in languages. If you've only ever studied English and maybe a romance language like Spanish or French, you don't really understand how radically different grammars of languages around the world can be. Mm -hmm. uh, you might have a kind of a narrow understanding of what language structures are. Yeah. When in reality, they can be mind-blowingly different than what you thought. Um, and somehow the people still communicate. So, yeah. for example, I remember learning Japanese. I started studying Japanese in college and studied abroad there for about seven months and uh, learned to speak uh, kind of an intermediate level of Japanese. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking as I learned it, like, wow, this language does everything exactly opposite of how English does it. Yep. Like, if there's a way to do it opposite of English, Japanese does it. It is absolutely yep. the opposite. Mind-blowing. I remember encountering this in my course on grammatical analysis back in, at the Canada Institute of Linguistics. And when we saw sample sentences from Japanese, I was... Floored. It was it was crazy. <laughs> right, right. I mean, the word order is very different. And besides that, things like, for example, they don't differentiate between a man and the man. There's no article mm. that would uh, indicate whether something is definite or not. Yeah. Also, for most normal nouns, they don't indicate whether it's plural or not. So uh, the word kuruma could mean car or cars. Hmm. And it's just going to depend on the context, yeah. whether it's plural or not. And so, um, you know, you might think coming from a Western background, how on earth do these people communicate without articles and without plural morphemes? But they communicate perfectly fine. They never misunderstand each other. They have their own strategies of indicating what they're talking about. And mm -hmm. they communicate perfectly. Yeah. So keep, keep going. Tell us more about the nuts and bolts of this course. Yeah, so we look at other topics like how languages form uh, questions and commands, mm -hmm. uh, what to do when you have a language that changes the order of things radically. Mm -hmm. um, all kinds of orders are possible in the world's languages. We're really used to, in the West, to languages that have an uh, order of subject verb object mm -hmm. uh, we always say like the man eats bread right uh, mm -hmm. subject verb object but all all possible combinations of subject verb object all possible orders are represented in the world's language so right. languages so we could have a language that would that express that with the man bread eats mm -hmm. we could have a language that expresses it with bread eats the man or bread man eats mm -hmm. or uh, eats the man bread or eats man the bread. All of those are possible orders that the languages of the world can have. And yep. uh, some of some languages will permit variation even within themselves. You know, they might have different sentences that have different orders depending on the context. 
Yeah. So we also talk about something called case and something called agreement, mm -hmm. uh, which are really important categories in mm -hmm. learning languages. So case is when noun phrases are marked according to what grammatical role they play in the sentence. Mm -hmm. So they're marked for what we call nominative case in like a Western way of thinking about it. Um, marked for being the subject or marked for being the direct object or marked for being the indirect object. We don't really have this in English at all or Spanish or French except for the fact that we do mark pronouns differently. So the only place we can kind of get an idea of what case is Mm -hmm. is where we notice that we say I when the speaker is the subject of the sentence. We say me when the speaker is the object of the sentence, right. the direct object. Or we say my when the speaker is the possessor of an object. So we can kind of get an idea of what case is from our pronouns. Yeah. But a lot of languages will mark every single noun. Mm -hmm. So if you've studied Latin or Greek, this is not a new concept to you. And German. Or German, Russian has yeah. it too. And English has those forms because, well, I've, I've heard that it's because English used to have a case system, so we have remnants that, that have stayed within our language, but the rest of it has gone out of, out of use. So. Yeah, and a lot of languages have lost case systems yeah. or gained them. They say that Hebrew used to have a case system as well. Right, languages go through these cycles of grammatical, mm -hmm. like really long cycles of within thousands of years they can cycle in and out of having a case system. Mm-hmm. And then we also talk about agreement, uh, mm -hmm. which again, if you've studied Spanish or French or Portuguese or a Romance language or um, even Latin or Greek, that's not a new concept for you. Um, yep. But if you've only learned English, there's only like one little tiny example of agreement in English, which is the fact that when the subject is he or she or it, then the verb is going to be marked with an S at the end. So we would say, I right. walk, we walk, they walk, but he walks, mm -hmm. or um, I eat, they eat, she eats. Yeah. And so we, but that's only in the, the present tense. So we only have agreement for one person, which is the third person singular, we call that, and uh, in one tense. Right. So we barely have agreement in English. We can like think of one example. But there are a lot of languages that have tons of agreement. Um, and Spanish and French and Portuguese would be examples of that. You know, they, the verb has to agree with the subject mm -hmm. for every person in every tense. Yeah. So you're always going to know from the verb exactly who did it, what person. Mm-hmm. And also in Spanish and French and these Romance languages, we see a lot of agreement with the noun. So they're going to have a different form of the for masculine and feminine yeah. and plural and singular. And that's going to agree with the noun that it modifies. The same thing for this or that. It's going to have different forms depending on whether the noun is masculine or feminine or singular or plural. Yeah. The adjectives are also going to agree in gender and in number so that would be another kind of agreement uh, between the modifiers of mm -hmm. a noun and the noun itself and if you've taken greek you know what a headache that can be at least for me it is an endless headache <laughs> yeah greek really takes agreement to an extreme extreme um yeah whereas every little pronoun is agreeing <laughs> with and um, the the definite article man oh. yeah it's pretty crazy 
But then you get a whole nother ball game when you get to, for example, Bantu languages in Africa. They have agreement in class. Yeah, I guess in, then with case systems, they don't depend as much on word order because of how it works as... Right, exactly. So if you have... I mean, often a, a language will have both case and agreement. So that would okay. be... Yeah. I mean, Greek has both of those. Exactly. Latin has both of those. Mm-hmm. But yes, if a language has a developed case system in which every noun phrase is marked for what role it's playing in the sentence, then very often that language won't depend so much on a fixed word order to show those relationships because they have a little affix or something like that on every noun phrase that already gives that information. So if you mix it up, uh, you don't get confused because every noun is marked for what it's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, you know, in English, if we say man, the man eats bread and bread eats the man, we have said two completely different sentences. Right. Um, because we don't mark the difference between the subject and mm-hmm. the object with any kind of affix or something like that. We mark it with or- word order. Right. So if for a language like English that doesn't have a case system, word order is our main strategy for differentiating what's fixed. the subject and what's the object. Yeah, for that reason, it has a more fixed word order, not yeah. so flexible. Yeah. Okay, that's helpful. So uh, you'll see with a language like Latin that they have a more uh, a more flexible word order because everything's already marked for what it's doing. So yeah. there's less risk of ambiguity. Cool. Oh, another really interesting topic is the topic of clitics, which okay. I think is a new term for people who haven't gone deep into linguistics and uh, syntax. Mm -hmm. Most people are pretty familiar with the difference between an affix and a word. You know, an affix is a part of a word, but it can't stand on its own. So we say in linguistic terms that it's bound. Mm -hmm. It can't occur alone. It has to occur as part of another word. Whereas a word we would say is free, uh, it can stand alone. Okay. What most people don't realize is that there's a whole gray area between these two extremes. There's affixes on one side and then there's words on another side, but there's a whole murky area of morphemes that aren't quite affixes and aren't quite words. They have maybe some features of affixes, other features of words, Hmm. and so we have trouble categorizing them. They don't fit neatly into either category. Could so you, these we call clitics. Yeah, for the listeners that may not be familiar with the term affix, give give an example of, of an affix in English. Sure, maybe? yeah. So we have, um, for example, the plural s, suffix, meaning it means that it comes at the end. We say suffix. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, for example, an affix like ness, goodness, uh-huh. badness, right. cuteness. We can create new words with that affix. So affix is a general term for anything you can attach to the word, like you can attach it at the front or at the back or whatever. Right, right. It means yeah. it'll attach to uh, a radical. Um, some affixes we call derivational, which means that we create new words using them, like ness would be an example of that. Mm-hmm. We take good and we create a new word, goodness. Mm-hmm. We create cute and or we take the word cute and we create cuteness. Mm-hmm. 
So those would be called derivational affixes because we have derived a new word by affixing that affix. Okay. Um, there cool. are other affixes that we call inflectional, mm-hmm. which would be like, for example, the plural. Yeah. Or that S that we put on the verbs when the subject is a third person singular, mm. he, she, it. Mm. Or the past tense D on verbs. So when we, when we use these affixes, they don't change. Um, they, we don't create a new word with them. We just yeah. modify a little bit the meaning of that word with some extra information. But we're not going to say that cat is a different word than cats. We haven't created anything new. So right. those are, we can talk about affixes and talk about different kinds of affixes, but then, um, you know, we would never say s or ness by itself. Right. That's why we say it's bound. Mm. Um, it's an affix that yeah. de- always depends on something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas good or goodness, that's a word that we can use freely. Cool. It stands on its own. Now, you have used the word radical a couple times to distinguish between words and radicals um, for our listeners what what is the difference more or less yeah so a radical is something that we attach an affix to so if we're looking at a word um, like like let's say walks he walks we would say the s is the affix and walk is the radical mm-hmm. so yes walk can be a word in itself too but we're trying to distinguish between when, we, when a word has multiple morphemes, like walks, mm-hmm. then we want to talk about the affix, and then the radical is what the affix attaches to. So the radical is kind of like, would you say it's the irreducible part of that word? Well, now here we get into, so we can also talk about roots. And I think that maybe okay. what you're getting at there is what we would call a root mm, of a word. Yeah. So let's say um, we have the word well, like we already said, goodness. Mm-hmm. Let's just say we can make it plural, goodnesses. Okay, it's a little weird, but goodnesses. Mm-hmm. So when we add an affix that is inflectional, then we call the other part of the word the radical. So goodness would be the radical, mm. and the s, the is at the end, goodnesses would be the affix. Okay. So it depends on what kind of morphology we're talking gotcha. about. We call when we're talking about an inflectional affix, then we talk about the radical that it gets added to. But if we're talking about a derivational affix like ness that has created a new word, then we're going to talk about the root, good, mm-hmm. and then the affix ness. Right. So we're going to use root and radical, not entirely interchangeable, but inter- not entirely interchangeably. Yeah. Because it's going to depend on what kind of affix we're adding to it, whether we're going to call it a root or, an, or a radical. Okay. Does English have roots? Yeah. We do. Yeah. Okay. This I is know a, about Hebrew roots, but sure, I don't yeah. usually talk we about would, English we would consider, roots. We would consider good the root of okay. the word goodness, Okay. for example. Or uh, we would consider the verb communicate. We would consider communicate to be the root of mm. the word communications or mm-hmm. intercommunication. Okay. Um, so intercommunication has several derivational affixes on it. It has cool. communication, it has the Asian ending, and it has the inter-prefix there. But the root of it is communicate. Mm-hmm. For those of you who listen to The Bible Project, if you haven't noticed by now, I am playing the part of John. <laughs> <laughs> 
and uh, my wife is Tim Mackey. <laughs> so let's keep going. Yeah. So you were you were leading into clitics, this murky yeah. area. Yeah. We're talking about the murky area between affixes and words. Yeah. And uh, these are morphemes that are phonologically bound to some other word. So they'll never occur on their own. They're not free or independent. Mm -hmm. But they move around more like words do. Mm -hmm. So uh, so what we say, like a definition of clitic would be something that is phonologically bound, but, um, but syntactically free. Okay. So this is hard to imagine until you're actually looking at some data from a language. But we do have an interesting example in English of a clitic, actually. Hmm. Um, and that would be the apostrophe S possessive suffix. So if I were going to say Andrew's head, mm -hmm. you know, we have that Z apostrophe S yep. on the end. And most of us probably think of this as uh, just a normal affix, but it has some interesting properties that make it different than other affixes in English. Um, for example, I could say Andrew's head. That is just occurring on a noun. But what if I want to say uh, the Queen of England's head? Yeah. Now, where has that affix appeared? It's appeared on England. Now, it's not England's head. It's the Queen of England's head. Right. But that affix is appearing at the end of the entire phrase, the Queen of England. Mm. We don't say the queens of England head. Mm -hmm. No, we don't put it on that head noun. We put it at the end of the whole phrase. Or to cite another example, we could say the girl I gave my lunch to's mm. backpack. Okay, yeah. You know, there it's what is it occurring on? It's actually occurring on a preposition. Mm -hmm. The girl I gave my lunch to is the noun phrase, and then we're putting that possessive suffix on hmm. at the end of the noun phrase. The girl I gave my lunch to's backpack. <laughs> so um, that's something we call a phrasal affix. It's a kind of clitic specifically called a phrasal affix. Okay. So it's, it's like an affix, but it occurs not on a word because normally an affix will only occur on one type of word. You know, the plural is only going to occur on nouns the the past tense d is only going to occur on verbs but this phrasal affix occurs on whatever happens to be at the end of the noun phrase cool so that would be one example of a clitic so what uh off the top of your head do you know of what are some of the languages that have a lot of clitics i think they're all over the place actually in lots of languages um okay. but a lot of times they're not well analyzed i mean mm. how many english speakers know that the apostrophe s is a clinic right. <laughs> you know they don't teach, the, they don't teach that grammar. it's not that important to someone who just speaks it as their mother tongue yeah and sometimes these clinics can be a little difficult to to pin down mm -hmm. if you're studying that language okay um so you know i think that a lot of languages have something that we could consider linguistically to be a clinic but they might be hiding there people might not really be aware of it okay um it would you'd have to really look at the way that it's distributed in the grammar and how it behaves mm. syntactically. One interesting thing is though that because they are kind of like affixes and also at the same time kind of like words, if you have a language that uh, doesn't have a really standardized writing system yet, 
Yeah. You may find that people are not consistent in how they write these clitics. You may mm. find that sometimes they write them as separate words and that sometimes they write them together as if it's an ax as if it's an affix without a space. Okay. And so that would be one clue I think if you're seeing that even the native speakers are writing these things a little bit erratically and they're not always sure if it's uh, separate or not. Yeah. That might be a clue that it I could see. be a clitic. It kind of has some things about it phonologically that make the, the speaker want to put it together yeah, when they're writing. Yeah, yeah. And it might have other things about it that kind of make them want to separate it as a separate word. So that would be one thing to look for. Uh, if you see that kind of inconsistency yeah. in um, a yet-to-be-fully-standardized writing system of a language, that might clue you in to the fact that, oh, this could be a clinic. Cool. So what else uh, do you study in this course? Well, we also talk about uh, passive constructions and different voices that mm -hmm. languages can have. Um, we're pretty familiar with a passive voice in English, but actually not all languages have uh, something like a passive voice. Mm -hmm. So a passive voice is a process that takes a verb that is transitive, which means it has a direct object. So, um, for example the girl eats the cake. Mm -hmm. And then if we're going to passivize that, we're going to take, a, we're going to promote the direct object to the subject position. Mm -hmm. So now the cake is going to be the subject. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say the cake is eaten. So I'm going to have to change the form of the verb. Mm -hmm. And now um, I have the cake is eaten. And now in English, I have the option to say by the girl. I can add in who did it again if I want to, or I can leave it out. Okay. So that would be a, a passive construction in English. We take the direct object, we promote it to the subject position, and then the previous subject kind of gets demoted and mm -hmm. even deletable mm -hmm. as the agent of who did it or something like that. Yeah. So uh, many languages have similar processes, um, but there are also other voices, like, for example, a really common one is the causative voice. Mm. So that would be a process that takes a verb, for example, an intransitive verb like die. Um, you, there's no direct object mm -hmm. to die. The, the, the lizard died. Um, so it's intransitive. But then if we're going to make it causative, we're going to add uh, an agent that causes something to die. Right. So the meaning, if we're going to add a causative voice process or a causative affix, for example, to a verb that means die, mm -hmm. we're going to end up with a verb that means kill. I see. So say the eagle killed the lizard. Okay. Um, but that, that word kill in a certain language might just consist of die and cause, those mm -hmm. two morphemes together. So the eagle caused the lizard to die would be like a really literal way to translate that, for right. example. Yep. We say this a lot in biblical Hebrew. There's yep. a lot of um, causative constructions. Mm -hmm. So to bring is literally like to cause to come. Mm -hmm. Or to drop something is to cause to fall. Mm -hmm. um, yep. Yeah, what was the other one that I had in my notes? Now you mentioned voice. Uh, for our listeners, what, what, what is that referred to more or less? 
Yeah, we talk about passive being a voice. So linguistically speaking, voice is a process that a language has. It can um, create new verbs, basically mm. using this process. So linguistically speaking, we consider to eat to be a different verb than to be eaten. Okay. Because they, um, they have different things that they demand of their, they have what we call valency or valency. Mm -hmm. uh, they have different demands of what kinds of arguments they need. So to eat needs a subject and a direct object. Right. But to be eaten only needs a subject. Mm -hmm. So they have different rules. Um, each of those two verbs has a different rule. Mm -hmm. um, you can't say like to be the, the cake is eaten the fork i mean <laughs> right the cake is eaten the girl you can't put a direct object with to be eaten it's impossible right. it's ungrammatical so it is a different functionally a different verb than to eat yep. because eat will take a direct object mm -hmm. um, so voice is any process by which a language takes one verb and derives a new verb that has its own different rules okay so that's why we talk about passive being a voice it will take an active verb and it will derive a passive verb. Mm. Causative could be a different voice. It will take, for example, an intransitive verb like die and it will create a transitive verb like kill. Mm -hmm. Or take an, a an intransitive verb like come and create a transitive verb like bring. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, something like That's that. That's helpful. So it, pass voice, voice means a process that creates new verbs. They're related, but it derives new verbs that are going to have their own rules for what arguments they take. So it's going gotcha. to change the um, change the transitivity mm -hmm. of that verb in the process. Okay. So now, did you want to talk about any more of the the bird's eye view of the contents of this course, or did you want to move on to something else now? Well, I guess I'll just talk briefly about um, embedded clauses. Yeah. This is a, something that varies drastically across different languages is the way that they embed clauses within other clauses. Okay. So uh, in this course, we have a whole chapter on embedded clauses. And we talk about three different kinds. Uh, clauses that are called complement clauses. Mm -hmm. So it'd be something that takes the place of the subject or the direct object Okay. So, for example, he said that Saturday he has off. So he said, what did he say? He said that Saturday he's off work. Okay. So that would be a whole clause. Saturday he is off work. Mm -hmm. That Saturday he is off work. We mark it with that to show this is an embedded clause. Mm -hmm. And it's taking the whole position of the direct object there. What did he say? He said, he didn't say a word. He said that. Yeah. And then the whole clause. So that would be uh, a complement clause in the position of the direct object. Or we could have a complement clause in the position of the subject, like um, that my new computer broke makes me sad. Okay, mm -hmm. It's not very natural that we would say that. Right, but it's but possible. But it's possible. It's grammatical. Mm -hmm. That my new computer broke made me sad. So what made me sad? Well, that my new computer broke. That whole clause mm -hmm. is in the subject position. So that's one type of embedded clause called a complement clause because it takes the place of a complement of the verb. 
Mm-hmm. We also have now. Before you move on, mm-hmm. there's so is this is this universal across languages, or are there languages that just cannot do that? As far as I know, it's universal across languages. Okay. I I think it is. Okay. I can't speak a hundred with a hundred percent certainty, gotcha. but I think so. Okay. Um, we also have what we call ob- oblique embedded clauses. Mm-hmm. So that would be something often in English grammar they're called adverbial clauses. Oh right. Um, so I make coffee when I get up. So when do I make coffee? I'm adding extra information about the time mm-hmm. with that extra clause when I get up. Okay. Um, or I like to go running. Um, before breakfast before i eat breakfast there we go before i eat breakfast i like okay. to go running before i eat breakfast or okay i'm happy even though something bad happened yesterday or that even though clause would mm. be like extra information extra optional information to the principal clause i'm happy gotcha so that would be what we call an oblique embedded clause and then we also have the third type, the relative clause, which is something that occurs inside of a noun phrase. Mm-hmm. So um, the computer that I just bought. Yeah. Or the house in which I live. Mm-hmm. So in which I live or that I just bought, it would be a relative clause. Mm-hmm. It's kind of acting as like an adjective modifying a noun. Mm. The shirt that you're wearing. Okay is great or something like then i could go on to talk about that noun phrase so that would Mm. be a relative clause and there's particularly this course has a whole chapter this book has a whole chapter dedicated to relative clauses because they're actually the most complicated of those three types of embedded clause Mm. and they have the most variation in what's possible so we for example will use a lot of connecting words in english we'll use that which we call a relativizer Mm -hmm. The shirt that you're wearing, the man that I saw yesterday, mm-hmm. and we have um, we also use relative pronouns like whose or to whom, mm-hmm. the girl to whom I gave an apple. Mm-hmm. Um, in which you know we can use all these different combinations yeah. to show um, to to create a relative clause. Right. Uh, some languages don't use any of that. Okay. They don't use a relativizer or relative pronouns. Um, Some examples would be like Japanese, for example. So I was um, I was telling my class the other day. We just just yesterday studied the relative clauses, and we were looking at some examples from Japanese. So if you want to say the town that I used to live in, Mm -hmm. we would in English use that to mark this is a relative clause. Right. And then we would have the embedded clause I used to live in. Mm-hmm. And then there's a little space where I used to live in the town, right? So that's there's a little blank spot right. where the town would go if that were a complete independent normal. clause, yeah, a normal okay. clause. Um but in Japanese they have no relativizer like that. So they would just say I lived town. That mm. literally I lived town. And because of the order, because of the word order, you understand that it's the town that I lived in. Wow. Um, My goodness. Yeah, but they re- they don't really mark it n- with any of the extra stuff that we use. 
Hmm. They would just say, I lived town. And then in Hebrew, there are a lot of relative clauses. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, another one of those little challenges amongst all the other challenges of translating. If a language doesn't do relative clauses like Hebrew, it's going to be a little more complicated to transfer right. the meaning. Right. For example, um, so in English and in in Greek, you know, we can do what we call relativize a lot of different uh, relations of a sentence. Mm-hmm. I can relativize the subject, the man that went to town. Mm-hmm. So man is the subject of went. I can relativize the object, the apple that I ate. Mm-hmm. So I am the subject of ate, and the apple was the object of ate. Mm-hmm. We can relativize even, um, we can relativize an indirect object, the girl to whom I gave an apple. Yeah. We can relativize uh, a possessor, the man whose shirt was red, whose, you know, we would use something like that. Hmm. Um, so we have a lot of flexibility as to what things we can relativize, but um, a lot of languages don't have all of that flexibility. I think all languages can relativize a subject, mm-hmm. but some are limited to that. They can only relativize a subject. Gotcha. Now, Greek, for example, or Hebrew has a lot more flexibility too. So if you're translating from a language that um, you're translating something in Greek that's expressed with, a, uh, say, a relativized possessor, right? Um, and you're trying to translate into a language that grammatically doesn't permit a construction like that, they can't do it. They mm. have this limitation in their grammar. Uh, so you have to figure out how to rephrase everything to be able to communicate the same information but avoid that construction Mm -hmm. so i was thinking of examples of this so in john 18 26 we have the verse it says one of the servants of the high priest a relative of the man whose ear peter had cut off asked did i not see you in the garden with him Mm. so here we have a relative of the man whose ear peter had cut off yeah now what if the language you're translating into doesn't have any way to say the man whose ear Peter had cut off. Mm-hmm. We're relativizing the possessor. So the, the man's ear, Peter had cut off the man's ear. We've taken out man. We've made it the head of this relative um, clause. Sure. The man whose ear Peter had cut off. But how are we going to give this information if... We can't do that. The, the language yeah. doesn't permit that. So we might have to restructure this verse a little bit and say something like, Peter had cut off a man's ear, mm-hmm. and this man had a relative who was a servant of the high priest. The servant asked Peter, yep. didn't I see you in the garden with him? Yeah. So we would have to radically restructure mm-hmm. the information here to avoid saying the man whose, Peter ear, the man whose ear Peter had cut off. Uh, still, in the end, telling the same story. Yep. But Same um, information. Same information is there, but, yeah, the information structure is going to be quite different. And so if you're a consultant looking at the back translation of this uh, in a language that doesn't do relative clauses, you're going to be really thrown off if you don't have an awareness of how languages can differ in these ways. And if you're not particularly aware of 
the differences between this language and the original language or the source text, be it Spanish or English or whatever else? Yeah, that would be one reason why it would be really important for a translation consultant to be familiar with these basic linguistic differences that exist in the world's languages. Because if you see some radical restructuring of the verse and you think that they've just made this grievous error and you demand that they say it like the Greek said it or like the Spanish or like the English said it with that same phrasing, um, they might not be able to meet your demand. Um, their language might not permit that structure, you know. So you're just creating extra yeah. work and headache if you try to, like, take a stand on a hill that <laughs> there's uh, really no battle here. They can't do it that way. They have to restructure it and rephrase yeah. it. Yeah, and then they might not have the kind of education or vocabulary to articulate to you why their language is different or why mm-hmm. their language can't do this. And then if you don't understand this and then they can't explain it, you're both going to be really frustrated. Exactly. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of tension. And this is one of the reasons you know consultants have to have a linguistic background, not just a biblical studies background, because a lot of these things will come up and Maybe, maybe even maybe the team will even have some linguistic vocabulary to be able to articulate what's going on. But then, if you don't and you you can't understand what they're saying in that regard, then you're still going to be frustrated. So, yeah, we 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 want the ideal is for the consultant to have this background and for the translators at least maybe at least one person on the team to have some of this information mm-hmm. and background as well. And I think an even worse case scenario here would be is if you're coming in as a consultant saying, what, you need to translate this with a word like whose, and they don't use a word like that, they don't have a construction like that. Well, it would be really bad if they say, okay, the consultant's the expert, we have to we have to do it this way, we have to invent a way of doing it this way. They throw together some construction that doesn't make sense in their language, mm-hmm. but that kind of looks literally like what you're talking about. Yeah. And uh, nobody really understands what this verse is saying because they don't actually do that, but they're trying to blindly follow your instructions because, you know, you're the consultant and they're trying to take your advice. And, uh, and they end up with a really bad translation because they're trying to conform to yep. some exterior uh, grammar construction that they don't actually have. Yeah, and I think tensions run higher when we're translating the Bible than as opposed to translating a movie or or a novel or something where if you're the translator or the consultant on that translation, you're going to feel a lot more open and flexible about things, right? Everybody will on the on the team, but the thing about translating the Bible is people tend to feel like, oh, this has got to be a lot more strict and super, you know, uptight. You can get really uptight about these things if you don't have a a grasp on how flexible languages can be in communicating the same meaning. So, yeah, that that is one of the tricky (laughs) issues in, in translation. Go ahead. Yeah, some other things that could potentially come up, for example, is uh, the language that you're working with might not have a passive construction at all. They may not have a passive voice. And there's tons of places in the New Testament where we have passive construction in Greek. Um, But perhaps the language you're working in doesn't allow you to say, by him and through him, all things were created. 
Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, so what would they have to do? Well, you'd have to specify who did it. Yeah. And all the places where we have a passive where no agent is specified, they're going to ask you as a consultant, well, who did this? Because we need to say. We yeah. have to specify who did it. And so you'd have to translate that verse, for example, God created all things by him and through him. That yeah. may be grammatically necessary mm-hmm. in a language. And that might ruin the the whole tone of your favorite verse, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> you'd be like, that does not sound nostalgic and nice to compared to what I... It's not what we're used to. Yeah, what I'm used to. And yeah, it, it's, it's, it's tough. It's tough to... To surrender your own uh, tradition, I guess sometimes that, that you're used to with scripture because it's something that runs so deep in our nostalgia. Another thing that might vary is the use that a question form is used for. So in English, we use questions for a variety of different communicative purposes. One of those is to ask for information. Uh, and another one is like this rhetorical question. Like you're not really asking for information. You're trying to make a point, but, but it has the form of a question. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think both biblical Hebrew and biblical Greek use rhetorical questions a lot. Yeah. But that's not universal. There are languages in which there is no, you would never use the form of a question mm-hmm. in that way. Questions would be only for asking for information. So if you put it in the form of a question... It sounds like an honest-to-goodness question. Yep. Um, and so you would have to then take those, recognize those rhetorical questions in the text mm-hmm. and have to convert them to a statement because that's really what's being said. Yeah, yeah. What would be a good example of that in, in the New Testament, for example? Oh, well, I actually did an episode on this, on okay, the whole yeah. issue of questions. Right. So they can jump back right. and hear a, a bunch of examples. Yeah. Yeah, so there's lots of detail there. Yeah, so uh, you got some more notes here, I see. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about those before we move on to what your class is like this year? Uh, Yeah, I just had thought of some interesting things that are not so much related to morphology and syntax. Um, They're more cultural and semantic, Mm -hmm. but there were just some stories that came to mind I thought that your listeners would find interesting. Yeah. Um, So one... One translation consideration is, um, you know, the different domains that different words have semantically. Mm -hmm. So in our Western culture, well, let's say um, oftentimes a language will use like their staple food. It can mean that specifically that staple food, but it can also in a wider sense mean food in general. So we do this in English with bread. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the Western culture, bread is kind of like that basic food. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, in Jesus's prayer, give us this day our daily bread. He's not talking just specifically about bread, but food and provision in general. Mm -hmm. Um, And when he says, I'm the bread of life. Yeah. Um, it's this really wide meaning of you know what what sustains you, mm-hmm. uh, what gives you energy and nourishment. Yep. And so uh, in a lot of cultures, bread is not the word that they use that way because exactly. bread is something imported. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, in Asia, they actually use in Japanese, for example, the word for bread is pang, which sounds an awful lot like the Spanish word pan, mm-hmm. Portuguese word pan, they got it from Portuguese that was introduced into their culture relatively recently. 
Um, so what's the staple in Japan historically be, rice? It would be rice, at least in okay. the, the nearer yeah. history. Um, and so in, in Asian languages like Japanese or Chinese, it's usually the word for rice that kind of doubles as the general word for food or can yep. at least metaphorically be extended to food. So that mm -hmm. creates a translation issue when you're, yeah. uh, when you're trying to decide how do I <laughs> translate the bread of life or mm -hmm. something like that. And um, so when I was studying in Hebrew, or sorry, when I was studying in Jerusalem mm -hmm. at the Jerusalem Center for Bible Translators, I was privileged to be part of a really international group of students. Yeah. And uh, we had dear brothers and sisters from India and Nigeria and Ethiopia there mm. as my classmates. And I really enjoyed the, the cultural lens I got to sort of borrow from them and see things in a new light through their different cultures. Yep. And uh, one of the really interesting things that they told me, uh, specifically um, the, the Ethiopian brothers, mm -hmm. they uh, shared with us that they actually, they even managed to uh, have an Ethiopian friend bring us a sample of their staple in Ethiopia, and it's called injera. Hmm. It kind of looks like a big tortilla, but I've it's very it. spongy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and a little softer than a it's tortilla. It's really different. And it kind of has this fermented taste to it. It's kind of like a big, thin, fermented pancake. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's this really unique taste. I'd never tasted anything like it. And mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of an acquired taste for a lot of people. But sure. uh, man, the Ethiopians are addicted to their injera. It's like they're mm -hmm. the center of their, their cuisine. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the Ethiopian brothers shared with us that, yeah, in the in the translation in Amharic, I think it was Amharic, the, the mm -hmm. language they were talking about, um, it actually says, Jesus says, I am the injera of life. Nice. So they went straight for that same staple in that culture. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so I thought that was really cool that they contextualized it in sure. that way because that really arrives to the heart, I think, right. of an Ethiopian. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then a similar story uh, that I heard from these same Ethiopian brothers um, one of them was working on a translation into a minority language of Ethiopia, which is his mother tongue. And he shared that in their culture, when you invite someone to eat to your house, you literally say inviting them to drink coffee. Oh. So even if you're going to eat and it's a whole meal, you say drink coffee. And so he, he said that actually... If Sounds you, like Seattle or something. <laughs> yeah, something like yeah. that. He, he explained that in their culture, if you say, invite someone to eat food, you're actually insulting them by inviting them to eat food. Hmm. I don't know how that might have come about. Weird. If perhaps you are, I'm just speculating, but perhaps you're somehow insinuating that they're too poor to have their own food or something. I don't know why that would be insulting, hmm. but in their culture, um, to invite someone to eat food would be an insult, but to invite someone to, to drink coffee would be how you'd say to invite someone over for dinner. For anything. For anything in yeah. general. And so, um, hmm. so he said that then when they were working on the New Testament, and they were trying to express the fact that, you know, the Pharisees would invite Jesus over for dinner. Oh, yeah. They, if they said, literally, you know, and then Simon invited <laughs> Jesus over for food, 
It would sound like Simon was insulting Jesus, yeah, yeah. which wasn't the case, yeah. um, at least not at that level. Yeah. <laughs> and so what they actually did was they say, well, I guess we'll just say he invited him over for coffee, which is hilarious <laughs> because obviously in those that time they didn't have coffee, you know, yeah. so you could... You could say, well, but that's not historically accurate. But culturally, that's the way they would express inviting someone over for dinner. Sure. Whether or not you actually drink coffee, I think they normally would in Ethiopian culture. Right. Um, but they had to actually say it's, that yeah. you know, Simon invited Jesus over for coffee to express that he invited him to his house for dinner. Mm-hmm. It's become like an ingrained, Im- embedded idiom right. that, that is assimilated into something. Right, that- exactly. That's more than the sum of its parts, yeah. Which we have in English too. Oh yeah. And plenty of things like that that we don't think about. So, cool. That's really interesting. What is the class like this year? You've got a wide variety of students attending this course. This yeah, time. I have nine. And you're teaching about in nine what students. language? I'm teaching in Spanish. Right. Um, I've taught this course once in English, and this is my second time teaching it in Spanish. So for the listener, just imagine all these crazy terms that you've just heard trying to communicate all this in Spanish. <laughs> yeah, that's how smart my wife is. Go ahead. At least most of them are cognates, so they're pretty <laughs> similar. Um, but yeah, I have nine students. There are actually a majority of them Brazilian, so a lot of them have Portuguese as their mother tongue mm-hmm. instead of Spanish. We have a couple from Nicaragua, a lady from Puerto Rico, and then a bunch of young people from Brazil, mm-hmm. and another man who's working in Africa uh, who's from Brazil. Yeah. So they've been a really fun bunch, and i um, excited to hear in the future how they take what they've learned in my class and apply it to different languages you know um the student who's already working in africa of course is already on the field and already mm-hmm. engaging with um a minority language there it's and been there for a number of years I right? Think 13 years yeah. yeah so he's kind of getting the tools now that probably would have served him well <laughs> in the last 13 years but um yeah. but he's already done a lot of work and so th- i think that's really helpful for him he's got more things to maybe connect with what you know his experience on the field with what we're talking about yeah um and a lot of the the young people from brazil are still in their their training their this is part of their preparation to go to the field in different places and work with minority languages mm-hmm. um wherever around the world they end up going yeah um, but a lot of them have actually studied English as well, and now they have Spanish. So that's really cool that they have at least three languages from which to draw uh, in our discussions of things. Yeah. yeah, A lot of them can recognize, oh, yeah, English does it this way, Spanish yeah. does it that way. We even found some really interesting differences between Spanish and Portuguese in our discussions, even though mm. they're really similar mm. um, grammatically, but there's some interesting differences. Oh, yeah, you can do things in Portuguese that you can't do in Spanish, for example. Yeah. So we've had some fun discussions. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so after two weeks of in-person classes with the whole coronavirus situation, we've had to go online and we had our last two weeks uh, taught through Zoom, like the whole world is doing right now. And so you're teaching on average five hours a day, five days a week for a whole month. Pretty much. So I'm really pushing them. They're having to learn a new topic every single weekday, which is a lot. Um, Yeah. So let's let's talk about homework. What yeah. uh, what kind of homework do they have to do? So 
I signed them exercises from this data set, this collection of data sets. Mm -hmm. That is the exercise workbook that goes with this book. So, um, so what is a data set? A data set is like you've got um, a list of sentences in, let's say, the language Pityatyara from, no, let's say, uh, in Mandarin Chinese. Okay. And, uh, and then you have a list of just the data, like uh, a transcription in Roman letters of what that sounds like. Uh-huh. And then you have like the free translations along the other side of what those mean. And so they have to uh, do the analysis, compare, okay, the meaning with what they see in the data, try to figure out what word corresponds to what meaning, mm-hmm. and then structurally what's going on, how is this being put together. So a lot of times their homework will consist in creating a lexicon, which is like a list. They'll categorize the words that appear in the data set according mm. to their syntactic category. Are they nouns? Are they verbs? Are they postpositions or prepositions? Are they adjectives? Mm-hmm. And then they will also write rules that show how the structure of this language works. Wow. Um, so they'll have to say that, okay, if a noun phrase can have has a noun and then the adjective comes after the noun, the quantifier comes mm-hmm. uh, between the noun and the adjective, and then we can have a relative clause at the end. So I'll write that into my rule. And so... They have to analyze um, the structure of how this language works. And then oftentimes I'll ask them to write an informal description at the end, which they'll have to say in prose what's going on grammatically Mm. in this data set and give examples um, in a way that would be clear to someone who's never seen this language before. Yeah. So they get practice uh, with sort of the nuts and bolts analysis and then a little bit of practice with how do I describe that clearly, which is kind of the most important part of this course. Yeah. If they're going to be trying to study languages that no one has studied before and make that information available to others, they really need to be able to communicate clearly what mm-hmm. they discovered. Yeah, so this is the thing for the people who love puzzles. Exactly. If you, if you love puzzles, sign up for a linguistics course and dive in. And this is also to simulate, right? This is to simulate... For them, what it would be like going to another language that's never been described, never had a grammar written, and gather data and then analyze it in a scientific mm-hmm. way, right? So this exactly. is, is giving them step-by-step simul- simulations for that task in all different kinds of languages. Right. They have a whole other class called field methods, which is details how do they talk to a speaker and gather data mm-hmm. and organize it. Yeah. And then this, my course is kind of like, okay, now once you have that data, what do you do with it? How do you analyze it? How do you organize mm-hmm. um, what you find out about it? And um, and they just took field methods, right? They did. And yeah. they were, part of field methods is you're learning a language and you're, you're paired up with a native speaker of that language that you do not know yet. And you're gathering data. And who was the person this time that they were paired up with? What language did he speak? Uh, Arabic. Arabic. They were working with an Arabic speaker. I think two Arabic speakers that live um, here in the same town. And so they were meeting with them regularly to ask them, how do you say this in your language? How do you say that in your language? You know, and and, um, trying to strategically ask questions to get the kind of data that then will be helpful to them. Mm -hmm. Um, Gathering a variety of different kinds of phrases and constructions. Right. Yeah. Right. So now my hope is that 
after having taken my class, they can go back and look at that data that they collected and they'll have a much better idea of what they're looking at. Um, they'll have the terms to describe what they see. They'll know a little bit better, I think, what questions to ask mm-hmm. and uh, what kind of other examples they would need to clarify things that aren't clear in their data. You yeah. Know? Um, that kind of thing. So their final assignment is in involving that kind of thing, right? Yeah, they'd already done a write-up about the morphology of the Arabic that they collected. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now, but they did that before they ever took this right. morphology and syntax class. So they really didn't have the terms um, to describe what they were seeing. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm giving them a final project of going back to what they wrote and revising it carefully cool. Um in the light of everything they've learned in this course, which will hopefully improve it a lot. And um, they'll know better what to ask, Mm -hmm. and they'll know better how to describe the things they found. Cool. That's great. So I should speak to those of you who I know what you're thinking, that I married way out of my league. So I just want to publicly acknowledge that and recognize that. Um, yes, that is the takeaway from this episode. Yes, that I married way out of my league and I do wake up every morning and I weep for an hour, <laughs> tears of unworthiness. So God is good. And thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. My pleasure. My pleasure. <laughs> okay. So as always, thank you for listening. Here at Working for the Word, we believe that the Bible is a unified, God-breathed, God-centered, hope-giving book, sweeter than honey, and pointing to Jesus. This podcast exists ultimately to help you treasure the Bible, go deeper into it, and become like the man of Psalm 1, 